The NFL announced 129 nominees for the 2023 Pro Football Hall of Fame class. Five Seahawks on that list. Which ones have the best chance to end up in Canton next year? Rob Rang and I are going to be breaking it down on our Tuesday edition of Locked on Seahawks. You are Locked on Seahawks. Your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network. Your team every day. Greetings 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks. Joining me for Tell the Truth Tuesday, my co-host in crime, Rob Rain. Thanks to all the 12s out there for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We greatly appreciate it. We're going to take one last look at Sunday's debacle by the Bay, the Seahawks 27-7 loss to the 49ers on Tell the Truth Tuesday. Some last-minute insight after taking another look at this game. And then we're going to look forward to week three, the Atlanta Falcons coming to Lumen Field, a team with a lot of changes on both sides of the football. And they've been competitive the first two games of the year, even though they didn't win either one of those games We'll be taking a first look at the Falcons in a jam-packed Tuesday episode. This episode is brought to you by Prize Picks. Prize Picks is daily fantasy made easy. Pick two to five players, and if they score more or less than their Prize Picks projection, you can win up to 10 times your money on your entry. First-time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with the promo code Locked On. That's PrizePicks.com promo code Locked On. Now for your lead story here on Locked On Seahawks. As expected this time of, time of year, early in the regular season, the NFL announced its nominees for the upcoming Hall of Fame class, 129 players total. Rob, five of them being Seahawks, and there's one notable addition this year, and it kind of makes me feel old because I can't believe <laughs> that it's been five years already since Cam Chancellor was forced to retire by a neck injury, but Cam Chancellor, first year of eligibility, is one of nine newcomers, first year eligible players added as a nominee for the 2023 Hall of Fame class. And Bam Bam, maybe of this group of players, has the best chance to immediately get in because of the impact he had on one of the best defenses in NFL history. No, exactly. I mean, winning rings certainly gives you that much more of an opportunity to be recognized by the national media. And that's what is critical here. Because if you look at the all five players, and those of you watching on YouTube can see pictures of all five players, Cam Chancellor, Sean Alexander, Ricky Waters, Chad Brown, Dave Craig. As you mentioned, Corbin, uh, you know, Cam Chancellor, of course, is the new addition to that group. I think that you could make an argument for all five of these players to be included in the Hall of Fame. I mean, certainly when you look at the the career totals of a player like Dave Craig or a player like Sean Alexander, as we talked about here recently with Sean Alexander being included um, in, in the Seahawks, uh, you know, ring of honor here, um, then we kind of talked about their numbers and, and why they should be getting definite interest in terms of Canton. Uh, I think at the same time, you, you look at what Chad Brown was able to do or Ricky Waters, what was able to do as well. Um, you know, while they split time in, in different cities, then uh, I think that they should be getting more acknowledgement, but there is no question. Cam Chancellor being one of the few guys that we can talk about as a, you know, from the very beginning of his NFL career to the end, he, played his entire career in Seattle, and he was a dominant player throughout 
his entire career in terms of his physicality, in terms of his ability to create turnovers, his ability to block kicks, his ability to play at his best at the most critical of moments. To me, those are the things that scream Hall of Famer. And, and so I, I would agree. I, I think that he is the likeliest of the five players on Seattle's list here that might actually be able to get himself that bust in Canton. And we've had this discussion a few times over the last couple of years looking at Cam Chancellor's Hall of Fame candidacy. And of course, the longevity issue is going to be brought up. He didn't have a very long career compared to a lot of Hall of Fame safeties, but Kenny Easley didn't either. And it took a long time for Kenny Easley to get into the Hall, but he finally did a few years back make it into the Hall, which he deserved to be there. One of the best safeties ever. Unfortunately, his career cut short. Cam Chancellor didn't have the Defensive Player of the Year or the First Team All-Pro Awards that Kenny Easley had in his resume. But at the same time, you can make an argument that there was not a player on Seattle's defense when they were first in scoring four straight years that defined that defense more than number 31. Bam Bam's ability to come up into the box like a linebacker and reset the line of scrimmage. Just ask, I believe it was Eric Winston on the Cardinals that got blown up and knocked on his butt by Cam Chancellor. How many safeties can do that to an offensive lineman in the NFL? He was an underrated cover guy that come up, came up with some big interceptions in his career. You mentioned clutch plays. How about that pick six in the divisional round against the Carolina Panthers in 2014? The Panthers were down two scores. They were threatening to make it a one-score game. They were knocking on the red zone, and Cam Newton threw it over in Cam Chancellor's direction. He picks it off, returns it to the house, and that ended up being the game-sealing pick. Had big plays in their Super Bowl victory over the Broncos the year before. Just asked, well, we can't say Demarius Thomas, unfortunately. Rest in peace, Demarius Thomas. But you can ask the Broncos from that team about how crucial those hits were by Chancellor early in the game. He had an interception in that game. A lot of people, including myself, believe he should have been the MVP of that game, not taking anything away from Malcolm Smith because he had a fantastic game too. But Chancellor was truly the tone setter for this defense. I don't know that he gets in first ballot just because of the length of his career and the fact he didn't have any of the first team all pros, but from a name recognition standpoint, the respect he garnered around the league and just his unique play style, he really was a trendsetter to safety position. You saw a lot of teams were trying to find that next Cam Chancellor and hate to break it to you rest of the NFL, but there aren't many six foot three, 230 pound safeties that had the hitting ability and coverage ability that Cam Chancellor brought to the field and so I think that does give him a fighting chance to maybe make some ways maybe be a finalist in his first year on the ballot yeah and, and because he's such a quality human being as well I think that's going to help him um, but one of the things that, that you just mentioned again it's just the unique aspect about Cam Chancellor just his size and speed um, you know there was some NFL clubs that I talked to prior to that uh, that that you know, uh, prior to the, the 2010 season when he was drafted by Seattle, um, that that viewed him as a linebacker, didn't think there was any way that he would be able to to play a legitimate safety in today's NFL. And obviously he eased all of those concerns very, very quickly. Um, you know, and, and he did play for eight NFL seasons. He was a pro bowler in half of those seasons. He was a second team, albeit. Uh, but second team all pro uh, in, in two of those years. And, and again, the fact that he was as 
physically dominant as he was. I mean, to me, I, I think of some of the great safeties in NFL history, Corbin. You mentioned certainly one of them in Seattle with, with Kenny Easley. And, and I think of the, some of the safeties that were known for their physicality. Kenny Easley, no question about it. Steve Atwater, the Denver Broncos, no question about it. Uh, you know, and Cam Chancellor, to me, those are the safeties that immediately jump out in my mind as being the guys who were those tone setters, as you said. And I think that's some of the reason why he has a chance here uh, to do this. And again, kind of going back to this idea of just who he is as a human being, there are some, you know, kind of negative thoughts out there among some when it comes to Richard Sherman, when it comes to Earl Thomas, this would be a way for the NFL to acknowledge the greatness that was the Legion of Boom with the player that arguably was the greatest epitome of that moniker. That's a really good point, especially with the off-field issues that we've seen Sherman and Thomas have the last couple of seasons. I don't know how much that actually weighs into this process, but those two players have been out of the league for a uh, less uh, less amount of time, a shorter amount of time. And so they're not going to be on the ballot just yet. But Cam Chancellor, with his career being cut short in 2017, first year eligible, he's got a chance. I think when you look at the rest of this list, the other player on here that might have a fighting chance this year, we're talking about names being out there. Because Sean Alexander is now going into the ring of honor for the Seahawks 15 years after his career ended, he had kind of become an afterthought. I've seen this happen with other teams around the league. All it takes sometimes is for a great player to get inducted into a team's ring of honor or to have their jersey retired several years after they became eligible that suddenly your voters are like, wait a second, Sean Alexander was an MVP and he was a fantastic player. Oh, look what he did in 2001 to 2005. Few running backs have ever had a five-year stretch that great. And just his name being back in the headlines could be enough to fuel him to at least be a finalist, something he has never been since he became eligible. So I'll be surprised that he gets voted in just the way that things have gone for him since he became eligible and how short his career was, how abruptly his greatness kind of hit a wall. But at the same time, his name being back out there, being in the ring of honor, I do think there's a chance that maybe that could fuel a little bit of a resurgence for him as a candidate to get in Canton. And he's certainly deserving. Ricky Waters may be the same way, even though he's not going to the ring of honor, a guy that had fantastic runs with three different teams. His personality is really ultimately what has kept him out of the Hall of Fame, at least in this reporter's opinion. I think a lot of media members just didn't appreciate the man off the field. And that goes back to what you said about Cam Chancellor. You never had those issues with Bam Bam, just as great of a man off the field as he was a player on it. And so we'll find out if any of these five make the finalists coming up in November, and then they will announce the players that will be part of that 2023 Hall of Fame class before the Super Bowl in February. Maybe, just maybe, one of these five Seahawks will be part of that class. Coming up next, we're going to take one last look at the Seahawks' loss to the 49ers on Sunday. Tell the Truth Tuesday. Some takeaways on both sides of the football before we switch gears to look at the Atlanta Falcons later in the show. We'll get to those takeaways coming up here in a moment. Turo is the world's largest car-sharing marketplace. With Turo, you can book any car you want 
wherever you want it from a community of local hosts. Browse a huge selection of vehicles for just about any occasion or budget across the U.S., Canada, and even the U.K. Book a spacious SUV or minivan for a family road trip. Get a classic or luxury car for a special event, birthday, or holiday. Find affordable economy cars if you're on a budget and just need to get from A to B. Test drive that new electric vehicle you've had your eye on to see how it fits in your everyday life. Many Turo hosts can even deliver the car right to you. Every trip is backed by liability insurance. Terms, conditions, and exclusions apply. Ditch the boring rental car and find your drive at Turo.com. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, Tell the Truth Tuesday edition. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Joining me for today's show. My co-host in crime, Rob Rang. Thanks to all the 12s out there, as always, for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We greatly appreciate it. We've got one last look here, and then we can finally burn the film for this last game on Sunday. But one last look, the Seahawks, unfortunately, dropping to 1-1, one and one, a game that never was close. Felt like it was a much further distance on the scoreboard than just 20 points. The 49ers dominated the Seahawks from the opening kickoff all the way till smashing into the end zone late to secure the victory, put an emphatic exclamation point on an NFC West win. Let's get to our Tell the Truth Tuesday takeaways, Rob. One last chance to look at some things that stood out from this game or just in general about this Seahawks football team going from week two into week three. Let's start with your first one. Yeah, I think one of the things that's a little bit concerning to me is just how ill-suited that some of the Seahawks players on defense look in a 3-4 scheme. And, you know, I kind of voiced some of this concern uh, going into the season. When you have a guy like Apuna Ford, for example, who is, you know, generously listed at six foot, uh, you know, he does not have the frame for a classic 3-4 defensive end. And you often want guys who are more 6-5 with supremely long arms, really strong at the point of attack. Puna Ford certainly is strong. But at the same time, the fact that he has struggled to make any type of plays, I think mean, he has three tackles so far this season. Uh, the Atlanta Falcons have a similarly built player in Grady Jarrett. The Falcons are also playing in a hybrid 3-4 alignment. Grady Jarrett has twice as many tackles. He has one and a half sacks to lead the Falcons at this point. He has a couple of tackles for loss, a couple of quarterback hits. Puna Ford is supposed to be one of the real difference makers for Seattle. And, and I think that we could have other conversations about Jordan Brooks. I'm not seeing his ability to get off of blocks as well as perhaps we had hoped, considering all of the, the hype for him and all of his success a year ago. And of course, we talked a lot about Daryl Taylor uh, yesterday, and I don't want to heap too much on him, but he has, and I've been among those who are very much expecting Daryl Taylor to be Seattle's most dominant pass rusher. And he has been basically invisible and not only in terms of the pass defense uh, and getting up field as a pass rusher, at least getting home as a pass rusher, I guess I should say. And he has been abysmal in terms of run defense. One of the reasons why we think that maybe we're going to see some other names being uh, filtered into Seattle's rotation at that outside linebacker spot. So to me, that's a takeaway, not only from this game against the 49ers, but it also was very apparent against the Denver Broncos as well. And again, when you have the next couple of clubs coming up on your schedule in the Atlanta Falcons, Detroit Lions, that maybe you, know, you can say what you will about the talent that they have, they are going to look to run the football. So these are some concerns that Seattle has to address immediately. 
Yeah, I think the schematic issues, they're certainly coming to the forefront now, and we didn't know exactly how this was going to play out in the regular season. And maybe it's just a case where it's still very early and players like Puna Ford are going to find their way in this hybrid 3-4 scheme. Maybe Jordan Brooks just needs a few more games to really figure it out. When you don't play in the preseason, that certainly can play a factor as well. These guys have not played against another opponent in this defense, but you don't have time in the NFL like Pete Carroll mentioned. You don't have time to wait it out. they got to get this fixed, and it's worth wondering if some of these guys can fit into this scheme, and that's the risk that you take when you make that adjustment. They thought they were going to be good fits, and sometimes it just doesn't work out. Hopefully, they can get it fixed, and I think that's a perfect segue into what for me is a bit more of a generalized take because we saw in that Monday night game against the Denver Broncos – I think that that was the upside of this football team. They're not going to put a ton of points on the board, but the defense is going to be pesky. You're going to have some really fun young guys. It's going to be a team that can be annoying, and they can upset better teams when they really bring their A game. But what we hadn't seen up to this point going into Sunday's game, we didn't know what the floor was going to look like for this team. There had been some imagining that it might not be very high, but as Sunday indicated, this is a team that, even though they're pesky and they can upset people, they have an incredibly low floor and they don't have much of a margin for error. When you consider they don't have Russell Wilson under center anymore, say what you will about Geno Smith. He has not proven that he is a long-term starting quarterback. He was a backup for the last seven years with three different teams. They've got issues along the offensive line, particularly in the interior, starting two rookies that look solid at tackle, but still it's two rookie tackles. You've got a lot of young players on defense. You've got veterans like Puna Ford, Daryl Taylor, and Jordan Brooks that, as you mentioned, aren't necessarily getting the job done from a schematic standpoint. You put all of those different variables together and the missed tackles and the penalties, and this is a team that because of the coach they have in place and Pete Carroll, the confidence he instills in his players, there are going to be games like that Monday night game where they are going to bring it. They're going to come up with big clutch turnovers. They're going to get the big plays downfield occasionally sprinkled in, and they're going to find ways to win games maybe they're not supposed to, but there are going to be games like Sunday too where if things start snowballing, it's going to be very difficult for them to right the ship because of all the issues that they have, the youth that they've got, the question marks on both sides of the football. And so this is a team that maybe they can win you six, seven, eight games if things fall right. But also could be a four or five win team, maybe even less than that if they play the way they did Sunday with a very low floor. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that Pete Carroll is acknowledging that floor as well. I'm going to read you a quote that, uh, that he said um, during his uh, you know, appearance uh, on 710 ESPN. And to me, this quote is very telling because it feels like uh, kind of reading between the lines, it feels like he is calling out his offensive coordinator, Shane Walter. It sounds like he is trying to set the bar up a little bit higher for his quarterback in, in Geno Smith and perhaps setting the stage for a switch to Drew Locke. I think he's also calling out DK Metcalf a little bit, especially as well as maybe Noah Fan, because I think that Tyler Lockett had a pretty darn impressive game, albeit the fumble again, the punt return, although I don't blame Tyler Lockett for that. But still, I think that this is a telling quote. I'm just going to read this real quick to you. And again, I think that you can just read between the lines and see the message that Pete Carroll is trying to send to his entire offense, essentially. And this is the quote. Says we don't need to hold him back at all. I think Geno's got his game ready to go. 
we need to trust him and we need to maybe give him a few more opportunities and stuff. We've been pretty solidly conservative, counting on running the ball. And when we didn't run the football, then okay, we didn't have much of a mix that we needed. We can do better than that. When whether that's right or wrong, that's not the point. The point is that we need to keep expanding. We have too many explosive avenues to go to, and we've got to make sure that these guys show up. These guys show up. I mean, that to me is a concerning comment right there in itself. It is it, when you think of explosive players on Seattle's team, and the, the first name I come up with is DK Metcalf, the receiver that you just signed back for you know gobs of money. Noah Fant is certainly an explosive athlete, and yet neither one of those two players has shown really anything in terms of explosive ability so far this season. And again, we don't need to hold him back. To me, what that's a statement of is the fact that when you're down on the goal line, you. I, Right after Geno Smith made arguably some of his best plays, uh, you know, certainly of the of the week two performance against the 49ers, then now you're going to ask DJ Dallas to to make that throw, uh, you know, to, rather than giving Geno Smith his opportunity. So to me, again, this is an interesting uh, comment from the head coach here that I think should be a little bit of a wake up call to basically everybody on charge of, in charge of offense for the Seahawks. Yeah, and I think you can even say that this is poking a little bit at your offensive line as well. He's not explicitly coming out and saying it, but I mentioned it yesterday, and it leads perfectly into what I have to have for my second pointer here. Stats aside, the running backs have done the best they can without any help, and that goes back to the offensive line. And I'm not picking on the rookie tackles here because I think Charles Cross and Abraham Lucas, they have been better as run blockers early in the season than I anticipated they were going to be. Now, Lucas, he got pushed back a few times on Sunday. I expected that with the talent the 49ers have. Charles Cross wasn't a hindrance, wasn't great run blocking, but he was he was solid. He wasn't a liability for him. The middle of the offensive line, though, I keep bringing up Gabe Jackson, Phil Haynes replacing Damian Lewis, even before Lewis got banged up again. All three of those guys were having a difficult time creating any push in the run game. And Austin Blythe, under 300 pounds, has been good in pass pro, but he is a liability in the run game. He is not somebody that's going to move people. And even in their zone runs, he has not been able to win the positioning battle and seal guys off. He's getting pushed in the backfield. So poor Rashad Penny and Ken Walker the third. These guys, they're getting the football, and there's defenders two or three yards in the backfield as soon as they get the ball. And yet there were some runs the other day. I know they had just 35 rushing yards, but I'll, I'll throw out the first play that they were in full house with that 40 personnel. Ken Walker, the third playing the Wildcat quarterback, takes the handoff, and there's already two defenders in the backfield, and yet he made both of them miss. Rockets to the outside, and DK Metcalf makes a nice block from his receiver position. He picked up five yards in a play. He probably should have lost two or three yards minimum, maybe even more than that with the way the 49ers crashed down on him. There was a run Rashad Penny had, and he made a cutback and turned a two-yard loss into a six-yard gain. Both these guys, according to Pro Football Focus, are averaging more than four yards per carry after contact this season. That tells you two things. One, your running backs are putting in the work. They're making guys miss. They're breaking tackles. And two, it tells you your offensive line is doing a crappy job. And a lot of it has been the guys in the interior. And so I'm going to say this right now just because a lot of fans out there have been frustrated by the running backs. This is not a running back problem. If they just gave them a sliver to work with up front, Seattle's going to be able to run the football, but they're not getting any help, especially from those interior guys, and it's preventing that talent from shining through. 
That you're absolutely right, Corbin. I mean, I when I rewatched this game, and believe me, I thought I had to have a drink to do it uh, because <laughs> it, it was just it, it was incredible how much room that the 49ers gave their running backs, uh, as well as uh, uh, of course Debo Samuel, the, the receiver slash running back. I mean, there were so many opportunities that they had to run the football where then the first three or four yards were were free and clear for them. They could they had multiple holes with which to choose. Uh, and, and that was certainly not the case for, for the Seahawks. So I, I would agree with you. Uh, that said, this is going to sound like we've been so negative about the Seahawks. And again, considering how poorly they played against the 49ers, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's very justified. But at the same time, I think that rather than getting too negative, I think you just got to look at some of the young talent. I've been really, really impressed with what I've seen from Tariq Woolen, especially. I, I've been encouraged by the, the limited opportunities we've had to see Ken Walker III. As you mentioned, his ability to make people miss, uh, you know, that translates to the NFL. And he certainly has that, that home run speed. I also have been really encouraged by what I've seen from both the tackles. Charles Cross, as you mentioned, has been a little bit better as a run blocker than I was anticipating. Abe Lucas, to me, the, the biggest knock that I think that that people should have on him over these first two weeks is maybe he's too physically aggressive. That that's the biggest reason why he's getting called for holds and you know things of that nature because he is just kind of looking to maul people. I think he's got to kind of rein that in a little bit. I think that certainly the corners, Woolen and Kobe Bryant, need to rein in their physicality a little bit. They're getting a little bit grabby down the line of script or downfield, but at the same time, that to me is coaching. If you have that physical mentality, that's what you can work with. So I'm really encouraged by Seattle's young players and do think that this is the rookie class that is going to make this roster rebuild that much smoother moving forward. Yeah, the rookies have looked solid. And I'm just going to piggyback off that in specifics, the cornerback group. And I'll admit, I did not grade Seattle's corners very good coming out of this football game. And they didn't deserve to have great scores. Tariq Woolen gave up three receptions, should have given up four. And Brandon Ayuk dropped a pass on the sideline. I thought Woolen got his hand on it. It was a straight-up drop by Ayuk. So he got exploited more in this game by Jimmy Garoppolo, who was able to get some throws in tighter windows working against Woolen. There were a few coverages that he just flat-out got beat outside. Mike Jackson only gave up one catch for eight yards, but he had two really costly penalties where he got too grabby. So that's an area he's got to work on. And Kobe Bryant, it was just a little bit of everything for him. He had three penalties in this game. I thought two of them were crap, to be honest with you. I don't know what the refs were calling. One of them was a blatant hole, but he's kind of gotten a little bit of the rookie bad luck from officials. He missed three tackles too. You can't leave that many tackles on the field. With that being said, I think that fans, while there's a lot of things not to be encouraged about with this team, particularly that play in the interior of the offensive line, the missed tackles, having an experienced defensive tackle group, and aside from Al Woods, everybody else has been playing very up and down. I mean, there's a lot to not be encouraged about, but these corners are playing aggressive football. They're making big plays every single game. You're seeing the flashes, and the things that they are messing up on are absolutely correctable, especially for a fifth-round pick or a fourth-round pick, like we're talking with Woolen and Bryant, that haven't played many NFL snaps. You can work with those guys to eliminate some of those penalties and have them tackle better. Woolen has already improved at that area. Bryant is capable of doing that. So 
Yes, this corner group is going to be maligned right now. They're making mistakes. They're very young. They're very inexperienced. But they're also making some plays. There's a lot of encouraging things to see on the film. I don't know that you can say that from the defensive line and especially the linebacker group, but you can absolutely say that with the corner group. There's a lot to be encouraged about, a bright future for that group. And I think they're going to continue to just get better, especially as they work on those penalty issues that have really been the biggest problem for them up to this point. We're going to move on from that game, though. No more 49ers Seahawks talk. We've got another matchup coming up at Lumen Field in week three, second home game for the Seahawks. The Atlanta Falcons, they're 0-2, but they've played very competitive football against the Saints and the Rams in their first two games. This is not going to be a pushover at home for the Seahawks. We're going to take a look at what's new for Marcus Mariota and the Atlanta Falcons coming up next year on our Tuesday edition of Locked On Seahawks. As a diehard fantasy player, I'm rolling with Aaron Rodgers to throw four touchdowns, Derrick Henry to post 125 rushing yards, and Devontae Adams to reel in 10 receptions in week three. Those might seem like bold leaps, but with prize picks, it's easy to play. Daily fantasy and put those entries to the test. Pick two to five players, and if they score more or less than their prize picks projection, you can win up to 10 times your money on any entry. No competing against other people. It's just you versus the projections available. Price Picks offers projections in any sport that you watch, whether it's the NFL, MLB, NHL, soccer, or even disc golf. Entries can be made in 60 seconds or less with safe and fast withdrawals. It's currently operational in over 30 states and Canada. So download the Price Packs app or go to prizepicks.com to sign up and play daily fantasy sports. First-time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with the promo code locked on. If you deposit $100, prize picks will give you $100. If you deposit $50, prize picks will give you $50. Don't forget to enter the promo code locked on at sign up for an instant deposit match up to $100. You're listening to the Tuesday edition of Locked on Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Joining me for today's show, my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. Thanks, as always, to the 12s out there for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We greatly appreciate it. And for your second listen, make sure to check out the Peacock and Williamson NFL show. Brian Peacock and former NFL scout Matt Williamson give you the expert NFL analysis in less than 30 minutes. It's free and available wherever you get podcasts. Shifting gears now, obviously, the Seahawks, Rob, did not play well at all in any fast of the game on Sunday in their 27-7 loss to the 49ers. They did win their home opener against the Broncos one week earlier, though. They're going to be motivated to get back in the win column. The Atlanta Falcons coming to Seattle, and the Falcons are in a very similar situation to the Seahawks. They're going with a bridge quarterback, Marcus Mariota, another former high draft pick, a higher pick than Geno Smith that washed out with his original team. He's been a backup the last several years, now gets another opportunity to start. There are a lot of parallels because the Falcons are clearly in a rebuild. They've moved on from stars like quarterback Matt Ryan and a number of other established veterans. That Super Bowl season in 2016, a lot of those guys are long gone. This is a completely refurbished roster. They are in the same spot as the Seahawks. And they have looked pretty good in the first two games, even though they lost both those contests. They had a chance to beat the Rams in a comeback victory this weekend. And it's a pesky team that's well-coached, and it looks like they are improving by week. 
No, they absolutely are. This is a good football team. I mean, Seattle, uh, I I think there's a lot of people out there who just are chalking this one up as a victory. And and as you said, Corbin, the the Falcons have looked pretty good, even though they're 0-2 at this point. You know, it was a last-second field goal by the Saints that that wound up winning them that game in Week 1. The Los Angeles Rams looked as bad as any team has looked in their opening loss to the Buffalo Bills. You knew that they were desperate and yet still they almost lost to Atlanta at home um, in in week two and so I think that this is a Falcons team that has had some significant turnover you mentioned the quarterback Marcus Mariota and and while he can be accurately described at this point uh, as a journeyman which certainly was not expected when he was an early first round pick a Heisman Trophy winner at the same time I really like Marcus Mariota's fit in Arthur Smith's uh, uh, as Arthur in Arthur Smith's scheme. Arthur Smith is the head coach, of course, of the Falcons. He came to Atlanta from Tennessee where they believed in running the football right down your throat with Derrick Henry, of course. Uh, he is credited with, with helping turn around Ryan Tannehill. So I'm not at all surprised that Marcus Mario is playing pretty good football uh, for the Atlanta Falcons, just kind of knowing what they're looking to do on offense. Uh, to me, some of the biggest changes that this club has made is I like the trade that they made for Brian Edwards, a wide receiver from Las Vegas, who maybe isn't the flashiest guy as a receiver, but he is a good downfield blocker. Again, fits in with what Arthur Smith has looked to do in the past in his offense. I like the physicality that they have brought to the team at at the linebacker position. Um, and, and I also like this rookie class that they've brought in. I mean, I can just kind of gush about this entire class, but I'll just say this. Number one, Drake London, the receiver they selected out of USC, the very first receiver selected this year. This guy is a physical beast. He's very similar in style and stature to Mike Evans. It is going to be fun to watch him go against Tariq Woolen. Uh, at least that's who I'm anticipating. Seattle is going to be matching him up against. And then uh, and, and then just the pass rush. The Atlanta Falcons, Corbett, finished dead last in the NFL in sacks a year ago. They had 18 sacks in 17 games, and yet they've got five already this season. I mentioned Grady Jarrett before. Uh, Arnold Ebiketti was a second-round pick, and they took D'Angelo Malone out of Western Kentucky in the third round. I think that both of them are going to get some opportunities. You mentioned that this is a similar team to Seattle in some ways. What I like about it is you're going to see some of Atlanta's top rookies going against Seattle's top rookies, and for a draft guy like me, that's worth the price of admission in itself. When you have two teams like this that make the major moves, getting rid of established star players like Matt Ryan, Russell Wilson, Bobby Wagner, when you have two teams like that getting together early in the season that had a bunch of draft picks, Seattle had the two picks in the second round. The Atlanta Falcons, they had a first rounder, two second rounders, and two third rounders. They were able to load up and being able to, as you mentioned, see these rookies go against each other, and a lot of them are going to be head-to-head matchups. We're going to get to see Charles Cross going up against Arnold Ebicady, who you know as well as I do was one of my fast risers that I thought the Seahawks should take. And he was with their, uh, with a boy Mafe on my late first, early second round ticket. Ebicady went in the late uh, or early second round to the Atlanta Falcons, and the Seahawks had to wait and get boy Mafe. So Ebicady's starting for him on day one. 
Malone is a player that's going to get some rotational reps. Troy Anderson, a linebacker that they picked, isn't starting, but he's playing some special teams reps for. I mean, this is a draft class that they're very excited about. And we haven't even mentioned Desmond Ritter because Marcus Mariota is the starter and has played fairly well these first two games. But you would think at some point, especially if they keep losing games, that they're going to turn the keys over to Desmond Ritter to see if he can be their franchise quarterback, their third-round pick out of Cincinnati. Another player that you and I mentioned maybe that the Seahawks might have interest in the draft back in April. So this team is loaded with young talent. This is a draft class that I think that they hit out of the park. They filled a lot of their needs. Of course, the question is going to be, can Desmond Ritter be your quarterback down the line? Marcus Mariota could still end up being your quarterback too because he has played for Arthur Smith in Tennessee before. And he is a really good fit for the scheme. He's still a fairly young quarterback that still can run really well. So that is going to create some issues for the Seahawks. But I think overall, both these teams, they haven't done it identical in terms of how they're trying to rebuild their rosters. There have been some different moves. The Falcons picking a tight end and Kyle Pitts two years ago as a top five pick. That's a lot different approach. The Seahawks traded for Jamal Adams, two first round picks for him. So both these teams have went a little bit outside of the box in terms of constructing their rosters and what they're doing now to try to get back into playoff contention. But there's no question seeing those young players like Evacadie and Malone going against Cross and Lucas, you get a good look at the futures and the present for both these football teams. And I think that's the best part of the admission price when you get to see two teams that are probably not playoff caliber teams, but they have a lot of young talent that they believe can get them back into playoff contention in the near future. That's what is going to make this a fun game to watch. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I think that when we, we talk about Seattle, you know, of course, one of the, the flashy additions that the Seahawks have brought, and that's not a rookie, is, you know, the outside linebacker Uchenna Nuosu. And, and I kind of mentioned the Falcons and, and the fact that they brought in some physical linebackers as well. They, they brought in Rashad Evans, uh, you know, previously with the Tennessee Titans, again, uh, former first-round selection. Lorenzo Carter is an outside linebacker, previously with the New York Giants. Carter played in a 3-4 alignment back at, at Georgia. Uh, Evans did the same thing back at Alabama. And so you are bringing in some size, some physicality, some familiarity with that alignment. And so it's allowed Atlanta to kind of come in, hit the ground running a little bit more. So they haven't had quite as much of adjustment as, say, Jordan Brooks and Cody Barton have, two guys who primarily have played 4-3 alignments. They bring, they're used to running and hitting, not necessarily defending and getting off of blocks. And so, again, it's one of the reasons why I think that Atlanta is poised to surprise some people Whereas those who are paying attention, I think, thought that Seattle might be able to be a little bit more successful, at least in terms of run defense early this season. And yet, obviously, that has not been the case. So, again, I, I really think that this is a very interesting matchup for lots of different reasons. And it's all certainly about the rookies, but also about a lot of the, the veteran additions that both these clubs have made as well. You got to give the Falcons this. I got to give them credit that they've really filled holes with players in the draft and free agency that fit what they want to do from a personnel standpoint. And the early returns are pretty good on both sides of the ball, even if it's not resulting in wins. Seattle, the jury's still open on some of that. As we mentioned with players like Puna Ford and Daryl Taylor and Jordan Brooks that aren't necessarily hitting the ground running in this hybrid 3-4. And maybe over time that will change. And these guys are really good football players. Maybe they'll figure it out. But certainly the jury's out a little bit more. Whereas Atlanta, it does feel like they've got a really good foundation that they're building with both the veterans they brought in and the rookies that they have playing right away. 
where they're really good scheme fits. And that really can accelerate a rebuild. The Seahawks are hoping that's the case. And they've certainly got some rookies that fit that bill. Tariq Woolen and Kobe Bryant are both corners that fit really well with what they want to do. Boye Mafe looks like he's going to fit really well playing that outside hybrid linebacker position. But this is still very early in the process. Both these teams are trying to figure these things out with a young roster, a lot of moving parts, different quarterbacks. And so while it's not going to be the sexiest matchup on the week three docket, an 0-2 team against a 1-1 team that just got dominated by the 49ers, again, the price of admission is going to be worth it just seeing the youth movement. And there's still plenty of star power on both of these rosters. So I think it's going to be a fun game. And that's a perfect segue into tomorrow's episode because it's going to be matchup Wednesday. And Rob and I are going to be diving into all the key matchups and offense and defense. You can guarantee there's going to be a lot of rookies included. This is going to have rookie first-year flavor on both sides of the ball for both of these young, rebuilding teams. We're going to get to that in tomorrow's episode. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Make sure to check out Locked on Seahawks and Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and streaming five days a week on YouTube. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. Go Hawks.